Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where you can learn about data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence straight from the industry leaders. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for being here today. I hope that you're having a wonderful week. Today, we have a different type of episode. This is a presentation that I did a couple of weeks ago, and it is on the 12 AI trends that business leaders and data scientists need to know in 2020. So what's happening in the artificial intelligence space this year? How is it changing? What are the trends to watch? Listen on and you'll get my top 12. Thanks a lot. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks everyone for being here tonight. I know that the team at Rubik's are obviously very passionate about data and about transforming data scene, not only in Melbourne, not only in Australia, but at an international level. And they really want to make a difference in the products and the services that can be done from Australia and uh, impact, have a global impact. So impact the world. That's something very uh, admirable that the team aspires to. So I'm very excited to be here. Awesome. So I've got a couple of things to discuss with you guys. It'll be around AI trends and recent developments. As you heard from Dylan, as you heard from Dylan, I have this podcast called Data Futurology, uh, where I interview senior executives in the data space about their journey, their mistakes, their lessons learned, and we try to extract those learnings to pass on to the next generation or people coming into the industry for the first time. And we've done over 100 hours worth of interviews now, and we have just over 15,000 weekly listeners, and we just hit... 1 million downloads, which is amazing. Uh, it's been running for a year and a half so far and um, definitely plans to continue over time. Besides that, I work at Liberty Financial, which is a group of about 12 uh, finance companies in the lending and insurance space. And I look after data science and engineering for the group. And I'm one of the co-organizers for Data Science Melbourne Meetup Group, which interestingly is the second largest data science meetup group in the world. So it is amazing. So. It's got over 11,000 members. And just by context, the others in the top five, the biggest is in Silicon Valley, then Melbourne. Third is also in Silicon Valley. And then it's New York and London as the top five. So that goes to show the amount of both interest and talent that we have in this city. I know that Sydney, Canberra, and Brisbane follow uh, closely behind with numbers around the 6,000 members in similar groups. So with that, let's get stuck into it. So 12 trends. I was thinking... um quite uh, intensely about, you know, what am I seeing? What's happening in the market? How I can add value to you guys? Because obviously we all work in the field. So some things are starting to happen now as in are in the seedling stage or the infancy and other things are starting to pick up steam. But they're all things that are going to, I think, uh, so one man's opinion, I think that they're going to have a huge impact on the industry going forward. The first one is uh, data is king. So obviously, Data is the input to everything that we do. And I think that it's related to some of the points later on. But I think that we've realized more and more as the market matures, the level of quality that our data needs to be at. I think that we should have better tools to handle data quality, to handle data management, to be able to trace how data is transformed. I see some nodes here. Yeah, John, good. I find that as a huge pain point doing data transformations, building data warehouse, doing ETL. There is um, not great technology and support around the auditability, the traceability, and I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. 
on my work, we built a new data warehouse on the cloud and we had to create our own testing framework to be able to track the lineage, which jobs ran when, what version of the models do we have, what quality was the data at certain points. It's a lot to keep track of. And I think it's about treating data. So the, obviously uh, a lot of people say our most precious asset, it's about treating data in a way that is completely traceable and that is almost like looking after it as a proper asset, as something that you monitor, that you want for it to be in a good state, sort of healthy. And there's very few ways to do that in the market today. And I think that there's, there's more and more coming up. Second big one, this one is definitely getting more, more and more steam throughout the last couple of years is around AI ethics. A lot of discussions about bias in AI, regulation in AI, a push from you know GDPR in Europe to say, People can request to know, can request for them to find out how a decision was made when an algorithm made a decision for them to get a loan or not. And obviously in the news, there's heaps of stories about algorithms that have bias, huge bias. So there's the Compass algorithm in the US that was racist when it said that African-American and Latinos were much more likely to recommit crimes uh, versus white people. So it was saying that it was an algorithm that was to help judges make decisions about the incarcerations. It was very racist. So African-Americans and Latinos were penalized. There's similar examples from Google showing higher paying job ads to men and not women. There was examples from Amazon that have AI to hire people into warehouses and the types of jobs that have high volume. And uh, they were racist, again, so discriminating minorities. Whenever this happens, when it goes into the news, people, and I think the media, naturally go to slap the algorithm and they go, Psh, naughty algorithm. Why are you so sexist? Why are you so racist? The hidden secret behind this is that the bias doesn't just happen in the algorithm. It comes from the data that is fed into the algorithm for that algorithm to learn. I've heard that some discussion online about people saying, doesn't the bias come from the people that create the algorithm? And in my opinion, the answer is no, as in the people that are creating the algorithms, if those teams were more diverse, which we should definitely have, because we'd have better outcomes, if the teams become more diverse, we'd have different perspectives of people looking for bias in the data. But it's not the people's biases being put into the algorithm. The bias comes from the data. And the data is captured, it reflects the real world. So it means that, and as we know, it means that in the real world we have bias, which is captured in the data, which then gets fed into an algorithm, and then the algorithm keeps making decisions as it learned from the data, so it's perpetuating the bias. In the case of the AI ethics, what happens is that we can now measure this bias, we can measure the impact. And it's essentially a mirror to society about the biases that we have inherent in society today, and it's forcing us, and it's going to continue to force us to have really tough discussions around what is the type of world that we want to create from now on, now that we have these algorithms that can make hundreds of thousands of decisions within a minute or an hour. So whenever there's examples of bias in algorithms that gets onto the media, a lot of people feel very negative about the AI hype. I always feel quite positive because I'm like, that's one less case of unknown racism, one less case of unknown sexism out there. And I think that that puts a little pressure for better tools that can help us detect that bias earlier. And by being able to detect that bias, then we can have the tough conversations. And really quickly as an aside, there's two libraries, both in Python called Lime and Shap, and they help with the explainability of machine learning models. So I see Raj over there nodding his head. You can use both on your data sets. And the difference is, is that Lime does, whenever you have a prediction algorithm that makes predictions, Lime 
helps you understand why a specific prediction was made by, so say we're trying to target this big red cross here as our prediction. What Lime will do is it'll give you interpretability around the decision points, the predictions that were just around that point that you're interested and try to get you a sense of how that decision was made by creating explainable methods that match the prediction of the complicated algorithm that you can't explain. So the good thing is that it can give you a lot of explanations, but it can only do sort of one point at a time and it does, it tries to understand the points around it. SHAP comes from Shapley values and it's a lot more popular at the moment. The reason why it's because it gives you explainability across the whole data set. So all of your predictions can be explained at once and it tries to tell you what is influencing all of the decisions that your algorithm is making out of your entire data set. I just wanted to point those out to you as really good tools out there today, but there's so much work for it to be done in an easy way, in a packaged way that it can be applied more broadly so we can have the discussions that we need to have about the world that we want to create. Number three, I got skills shortage and automation. And here I'm wrapping up the fact that Australia has woken up to the need of data engineers. As we know, like two years ago, we all wanted data scientists. I was like, data engineers, who cares? Give me data scientists. It's all about the scientists. You have some smiles over there, straight. Definitely, like I was in the same spot where I was like, how many data scientists can I hire? I just need all of them. How many do you have? <laughs> I'll take all. And then as a market, we realized that it's like, okay, well, these guys have really shitty inputs actually. So how about we get some guys that fix the data issues so we can make our scientists heaps more productive. So there's definitely a skills shortage. Two years ago, when you looked at LinkedIn and the amount of people that had the title data engineer versus the, the title data scientist, it was 12 to one in terms of you had 12 data scientists on LinkedIn for every one person with a data engineering title. And the demand that's happening now, it's starting to try to balance the force, but it's still at a two to one. So there's at the moment two data scientists for every one data engineer title in LinkedIn. And it means that more and more people are coming out of the woodwork to become a data engineer. And that uh, they come from business intelligence, from data warehousing, from software engineering, more and more people are upskilling. And I know that I've hired people that used to be like IT project managers. And two or three years ago, they decided to upskill to something else and did heaps of courses online. And today that data engineers, it's a really important area. So that's definitely around the skills shortage. The flip side of the skills shortage is the data literacy. So there's been a lot of talk about, you know, the citizen data scientist, improving data literacy around the business. And it's because like, we don't have enough people to do this job. It's super important, super necessary. We want to get it done as quickly as possible. Let's make everyone data literate. Let's get everyone looking at data, creating reports, making the data-driven decisions. Tam, it's like super hard. Tam's like, yes, but no, super hard. Super hard. I might work with, we built this new warehouse and we're literally training people to be around the business to be self-sufficient in their BI and their reporting. So they have direct access to the data coming out of the warehouse that's clean and et cetera. They make their own reports and then we come over the top and uh, put AutoML, which is the other part of the automation bit to try and predict the KPIs that they care about. So just finishing on the middle point around the data literacy, we at the moment, at my place, at my work, we're running a two streams of training to increase this data literacy. One is, one is around data analytics, 
And it's essentially using kind of traditional-ish business intelligence reporting tools that allow the business to be self-service. And with that, we go, we clean, prepare the data. From that point, go crazy. If you need some coaching, if you need some assistance, come talk to us, but go crazy. And we force that the, what we're imposing is that the data can only come from the data warehouse. So we know that it's clean at a quality level that we essentially certify as a data engineering team. But if they have spreadsheets of data that they capture themselves or need data from a system that is not yet in the warehouse, they have to come to us and it has to go through the warehouse for that to come into the reports. And we're giving them much better functionality than what they had before. And the data is updated much more often, about every five minutes for them to do that. So that's around the data literacy and citizen data scientists, which I think is something that a lot of companies are, are trying to improve. And it's a hard gig. It's a hard gig. I was talking to Michaela before about the transformation project that she's taking on. It's hard. It's so hard to get people to change their behaviors. There's definitely benefits and early adopters, but a lot of work yet to be done, in my opinion. And then the third part, in my view, is this auto machine learning that has come up. So there's open source alternatives. And one really good one is a package in Python called Teapot, like a teapot, but it's just T and then P-O-T. And that does supervised learning in an automated way. So you get it to predict and it creates heaps of different models in the background for you. And it does sort of a winner challenger or Darwinian approach to the algorithms that the best ones win and they come out of top. And then those are the ones that you use. That's for uh, supervised learning. So when you have the answer in the data and then on the other side, there's on time series and forecasting, there's a really great package also in Python from Facebook and it's called Profit. Profit does the same type of sort of auto machine learning for time series and uh, forecasting. So uh, I work in finance. Before I was a consultant and working across many industries, most or a large part of business data is captured over time. So time series and this uh, Facebook Profit is a really great open source AutoML tool that can be easily integrated. And then there's obviously uh, commercial packages available too. Number four, rise of the intelligence unit. I've seen this a couple, maybe three times last year, and then this year, I reckon 20 times, where organizations have started a new area, which is an intelligence function, kind of like a CIA for the business, for the organization. Generally, it reports directly to the CEO, and most times, it looks for external market threats, competitor shifts, changes in technology, and it's trying to use data to try and predict and anticipate the changes in the organization that come from those shifting uh, landscapes. We're most used to hearing about these in government settings. Australia obviously has ACO, the federal police has a an intelligence department that also reports directly to levels very high up in the organization. In business, we're just starting, and it's a really interesting department. A couple of times I've seen it as part of the data function, but with a dotted line between the CAO or CDO and to the CEO directly. And the idea is to use internal and external data to predict the threats and the changing in changes in the competitive landscape, of which obviously these are increasing. And there's a couple of companies that are doing this really well and selling the insights at like astronomical prices. And one of them recently opened in Melbourne. When that price is too high, a lot of companies choose to do it internally and start building the capability internally. So we'll, I think we'll see more and more on this in the coming years. Number five, AI in every device. As of next year, all new phones will have an AI chip 
So a chip dedicated to do machine learning, computer vision, neural network processing, a dedicated AI chip on your phone, as well as your CPU, and a lot of cases of the newer phones, your GPU. So GPU traditionally thought of obviously computer graphics, but also machine learning. Now they develop a dedicated chip to do AI on mobile devices. This trend started a couple of years ago where one of the early famous stories that came out in the news was a guy that was a computer scientist and his parents, he's a Japanese guy, and his parents were cucumber farmers. And what happened during cucumber season, his mom would spend 14 to 15 hours a day sitting down sorting cucumbers. And the sorting came from the shape of the cucumber. Is it like a U-shape? Is it actually straight? Is it slightly curved? What's going on with this cucumber? And she would put it in about 11 different buckets and would do this 15 hours a day for about six weeks, right? Every year. And this guy took a break of his work and went to live with his parents. And he saw his mom doing this and he's like, what the hell? <laughs> we can apply some machine learning to do this. At the time, there was uh, machine learning packages that were just starting to be being able to be run in mobile devices. And in this case, he used a Raspberry Pi, so a credit card size little computer to run the machine learning. And he used an Arduino chip to create, to move a conveyor belt that moved like all these cucumbers coming in, went into the conveyor belt, went into a slot where there was a camera, three cameras actually, to get a picture from the top, from the side, and from the front. And it would, on the Raspberry Pi at the time, the libraries weren't very powerful to run machine learning on devices. So at the time in the Raspberry Pi, he could only run the algorithm to say, is this a cucumber or not? Is it a cucumber or a bottle of beer? Is it a cucumber or a plush toy, right? And then if it passed that it's a cucumber test, then the images were sent to the cloud as the conveyor belt was moving. The cloud processed what type of cucumber it was, and it was type eight. So the conveyor belt moved the cucumber all the way to 0.8. And then there was like an arm that literally just hit it and it went into a bucket labeled eight. So this guy, over a couple of weeks, he was able to build this infrastructure for to automate the work of his mom and obviously help his parents. Fast forward to now, there's machine learning, machine learning algorithms that run on your browser, including your phone. So you can write machine learning on JavaScript. There's packages like TensorFlow Lite that can run on your CPU and GPU on your phone. But now as we go into these AI chips on the phones, the amount of AI and machine learning that we can use on these mobile devices is gonna increase exponentially. And I've got some examples uh, later on onto what can be done and what's happening. On the AI in every device, I'll just say that a couple months ago on the podcast, I had the head of AI from Intel and she was telling me how they're obviously creating these AI chips, but that a lot of the design of the new chips is being done through AI. So instead of humans designing the chips, AI is designing the chips to run AI on your phone so and, and computers as well. So it's getting, um, the uses of AI is getting uh, seeping into everywhere and um, it's really, really amazing. Another big one, um, AI as a service. This is better understood. And sometimes I talk with data scientists and I tell them that they can use services from Microsoft, from Apple, uh, from Microsoft, from Google, from AWS to rapidly create their services or using their services, they can rapidly create AI solutions. And they usually look at me like with disgust, right? They're like, what do you mean? I want to be building the models. I want to be building the algorithms. I'm like, yeah, but how long does that take you? And I told them like my work, I was like, we get, this happened to us three weeks ago. We got a request from the CEO Wednesday afternoon and Friday morning, we were demoing a product to say like, this is what we can do. 
In that time, like you're obviously very little time to do anything, but there's heaps of APIs that can help you with image recognition, video, voice recognition. There's pose estimation, which I'll show later. And you can cobble these things together very quickly to show what the value can be and then decide whether it's something that should be pursued further. And a lot of times, you know, these large companies, they have armies of people, 600 people working on this problem, a thousand people working on this problem. There's no way that like we're going to keep up with that or beat them. So use the best of what's available there and contextualize it for your organization and add the secret sauce on top of that. If I'm going too long, Joe, just give me the... I'll pick up the pace. Seven, data science as engineering. And this one is going... I see it as we're transitioning from proof of concept land to in-production systems. And for that, we need a lot of monitoring, similar to what I was saying before around uh, trying to understand the quality of your data. This is also around the quality of your models, how the predictions are going, whether the data that the models are seeing in production is similar or different to the data that they were trained on. And if it is different, you need to be alerted. So if you trained your model on examples of people that were 25 to 45, and then suddenly your algorithm starts seeing people that are 70 years old, your algorithm is going to struggle making good predictions and, and you don't know how good those predictions can be. So your system should give you an alert to say, hey, I need to be retrained because now there's different data to what I learned on. This type of more software engineering practices are coming very strongly into data science, into our field and something that will have better and better solutions over time. I'm seeing business units driving AI adoption and ROI. And I sort of feel like bittersweet about this because everything we want is for the business to be using our outputs, to be using our work, to be getting the value of, of our efforts. In some organizations, I'm saying that the data science team isn't able to make great inroads into changing the business behavior. And CEO gets frustrated and then pushes back down to the business unit to say, if you're not making data-driven decisions, then don't talk to me. We're just wasting our time. So for me, that's bittersweet. Like it's sweet because we're making the progress and we're getting more data-driven decision-making happening in organizations. It's bitter because a lot of times, not always, it's seen as kind of like a semi-failure from the data science team and making inroads in the business and uh, the pressure needs to be come from elsewhere. But on the flip side, it also shows that there's buy-in from very senior uh, leaders. Analytics for customer benefits. These are things like, an example that I love is a lot of the new cars coming out, they have cameras all around, they have sensors. If you put it on cruise control and there's a car in front of you that is going a bit slower, your car starts to slow down and matches that speed, right? That data is being captured, sorry? That's been around for ages, right? So that data is being captured. None, as far as I know, none of the insights are being fed back to us, right? How good would it be to get in your car and it goes, hey, when you drive between 8 and 9 p.m. on Wednesdays, you're most dangerous driving. P.S. That's right now, for example. Like right now, it's Wednesday, 8 p.m. You are at your most dangerous driving. Wouldn't you want to know that as a driver? The data is there. It's being captured. The insights are not being used for the benefit of the customer. So that technology, yeah, it's been around for ages. Like the customer benefit isn't there. It's benefiting the companies. Like they're tracking your car. They know how much petrol you're putting in the car. They know where you drive. What are they giving back to you in terms of that data? There's so much insight. And what I see is that when companies start providing this analytics back to the consumer, they do it at a very transactional or very granular level instead of sort of aggregated insights. So for the people that have like a Fitbit or a Garmin watch, you go for a run, your watch goes, 
your time for this one kilometer is X, five and a half minutes. And like, I don't run often enough to go like, is that good? Is that bad? Is it better? Sometimes it goes, hey, you're doing a little bit better than, than before. And I'm like, okay, but that's the insight at the one kilometer mark at the transaction level. What are the overall insights? The watch should say, hey, you're slowing down your training. Like, are you okay? And if I got a pop-up like that on my app, I'd be like, oh no, like I hurt my calf or whatever. Like you, if you have insights coming to you, you're much more willing to give more data. And that's something that I'm, I'm starting to see companies shift their thinking in terms of using the same data, the same tools, the same teams, the same work that has been done analytically to improve the company. Take that and just shift it like a, a couple of degrees and repurpose that work because it's the same work, but repurpose it for the benefit of the customer. Number 10, uh, causality and machine learning. A lot of machine learning looks for correlations. So things that move close, that move together. Sorry, sorry for um, getting in the way. And in the past, causality has been a manual analysis to say, does A cause B? So causality is like, if I move this lever by 5%, how much, I say I drop my prices by 5%, how much extra customers can I expect? That causality analysis is something that has traditionally been outside of machine learning and done more by econometricians and done by hand. That's now being fused into machine learning and there's a lot of work into how we can automate a lot of the large and uh, practices of causality. And then this uh, comic, which I love, it says, I used to think that correlation implied, I used to think that correlation implied causation. Then I took a stats class and now I don't. And then the friend goes, well, it sounds like the class helped. And the guy goes, well, maybe, as in the causality doesn't really apply. Future is Bayesian, number 11. So if we think about machine learning in the top level, at least uh, the framework that I have in my mind, there's three big branches of machine learning with a couple of new ones coming in. But the three big ones are supervised learning, unsupervised learning, and reinforcement learning. And 97% of the value created by machine learning in the world so far has been by supervised machine learning, when you have the answer for the algorithm to learn from. And in there, there's a few camps of how to do machine learning. One of the most very popular ones at the moment, obviously, is neural networks that led to deep learning. There's also trees, like decision trees and random forests. There's SVMs, support vector machines. There's inductions, which comes out of rules. And one of the other ones is the Church of Bayes. So Bayes is the name of the guy that invented it, Bayesian, which is this, um, this equation here. But what it does, the way that it works is that for anything that you're trying to understand or predict, you start with a guess here labeled as prior beliefs, right? The fancy word, but essentially it's your, what's your best guess based on your knowledge, on the business knowledge, the business understanding. And then you bring in this curve, which is the evidence. So you have your guess, you bring in the evidence, and the equation adapts your belief closer to the evidence. And then as you get more evidence, you get sort of closer and closer. And the idea is that you, you have a prior belief. So you have a hunch of what could be happening and you're testing that and improving over time. It sounds very natural because that's the way that we work as humans. Um, it's something that has been in machine learning and in statistics, it's seen as a different branch of statistics that a lot of people don't explore. And now it's being fused more and more into machine learning and there's a lot of work happening here. And then the, the last one that I have is this XXX or anything plus AI becomes intelligent or better XXX. And by that, I mean, one of the recent ones that Google's done is with gaming, like li literally console gaming, where they said, we're going to be able to run really powerful games from any device. 
And traditionally, you needed a console, like you needed a PlayStation or an Xbox, a Nintendo to be able to play. And what they're doing is they're running that hardware on the cloud. And a lot of people said, well, the latency is going to be an issue because you're going to be waiting for the information to be sent backwards and forwards. What they're doing is that they're predicting what you're going to do in the game, and they're sending that information to your device before you do it. That's mind blowing in the sense of like the different types of application. So I think that's happening across our databases, that's happening across our BI systems, uh, more, more and more and more things. And then the, um, I'll go very quickly through some uh, recent developments. This is just showing uh, the use of mostly deep learning in terms of AI across different industries and how it's speeding up. This is the error rate by machines when analyzing images. The blue bar is a machine error. It's gone down exponentially. The red line is the human error. So now since 2015, machines have been better at analyzing images better than humans. And then we have things like this, where a machine learning or an AI is taking this picture and creating a, a cartoon version of you. And that's being done automatically. Sorry to keep walking in front of. We have in around the, the images as well, we have this enhancement where you can have an image that's quite low resolution, quite pixelated, and then the AI makes it into a higher resolution image. So this is like in CSI or these like, you know, like investigation or crime shows that they go zoom in with the CCTV camera, now enhance. That's what this AI is doing now, which is amazing. This is being used uh, to understand uh, in medical systems as well. So this is understanding um, cancer in cells. You can have a very low resolution image and it goes into a, a much better resolution image. And it's also coloring old pictures. So this is the original picture in black and white and you can see how it comes out in color and that's been done by AI after seeing obviously heaps of different examples. This one related to text. This is uh, in healthcare, and people are typing questions into a system connected to a database. They're typing in their questions in English, and the system is creating the SQL query itself and then getting the data for the answer. Obviously, we'll see some of that later tonight, or uh, we'll talk about it, but that's um, you know a paper being done. Does anyone know any of these people? All these faces are of people that don't exist. They've all been generated through AI. So taking hundreds of thousands of pictures of people, now we can create people that literally have never existed through AI. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of advancements where you literally type what you want to see in an image and the AI creates it. Here you see it in animals. I'll skip through that. With, with those types of powers, you can do these deep fakes, which are fake images and fake videos, including the fake voices of people as they move. Yeah, right? I know, please, can we not? So in this case, we have these six people on the slide and they, I think they look mostly real. And anyway, the answer is that there's only two real ones. So this guy and this woman and all the other four are fake AI generated in terms of how they move, how they speak, what they say, everything, which is amazing. And here we have an also an AI generated co-host. So the woman is real, the man is fake, and then there's another AI that's trying to detect the fake animations created by AI. And here it's uh, detecting that the face uh, of the guy is fake. Amazing. I'll speed through this one. This is um, the DeepMind Go beating the world champion. And then in StarCraft II, beating the world champions, getting to Grandmaster level in a matter of days. They're using a lot of AI, complex architectures, etc. But this is a strategy game where the program learned from a little bit of training data from humans, but then largely playing itself. And uh, the same similar type of AI can now do animation much better than humans and much faster. 
And these are two examples, uh, which is the last two slides, sorry, Joe. <laughs> these are two examples of the type of AI that can now run on phones really simply, like you literally just download it and put it into your program. One of them is this smart reply for the people that use Gmail. You get a smart reply when you're going to reply to an email. Sometimes you get a smart reply and now more and more you get a smart compose that as you start typing and starts telling you what are the next words that can come up. That's a machine learning model that can run on your phone without breaking a sweat. So that can be integrated into all sorts of programs. And then the last one that I have is this pose estimation. As you see, here's a, a, the girl doing some yoga and you see in the lines there, the kind of like the stick figure of what her pose is. That's using AI as well. And uh, that's called pose estimation that from an image or a video, it can see how you're standing and how you're moving. And I know that, for example, in Melbourne, there's um, startups that are being built off the back of this technology. And it doesn't only apply to one person, but it can do heaps at a time. Sorry, Joe, that's the end. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, thank you so much. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommend it for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.